Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, the CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for showing the publishers that Baltimore buys books. Yes! With your support and coming out like this, it helps us get wonderful speakers like we're getting tonight. And this is really an exciting night for all of us. And so we appreciate also that you coming out on a cold and wet night and showing them that Baltimoreans are not afraid of weather. <laughs> These events are brought to you by wonderful sponsors, and tonight's uh, program is wonderfully sponsored by One Main Financial, and we thank them. And so tonight, and as you can see, we have a powerhouse political duo for you tonight. And whatever side of the political aisle you're on, and um, I just want you both to know that this room is not divided left or right. It just, we just needed an aisle. Uh, we promise you that their insights will be worthwhile. And to really make sure that things keep, uh, you know, the title of the book is Love and War, so to make sure that the love part really uh, stays in there, we have a wonderful moderator from WEAA, our own Mr. Mark Steiner, who's going to lead them in discussion. Mark, come on up. And of course, I think you know who our guests are. So, Mark. Oh, it's my turn? Yes. Okay. Good evening, everybody. How are you all doing? Good. Well, we've got a special night here. This is the second time I've done this. I think it was about 12 years ago um, with Mary Matlin and James Carville, who don't need a lot of introduction. I mean, we all know who they are, running major political campaigns and uh, being on TV and doing the work they do. And everybody thinks, how could they love each other? Well, we're about to find out. The book is Love and War, and here they are. So a few rules, and I'll show what we're going to do before we start. Um, we're going to go to 8 o'clock, um, and uh, then they're going to dash out the door, because Mary Matlin is recovering from surgery, and uh, so they will go and get some rest, or they have signed hundreds of books that will be here for you all uh, after this is over, and we'll do a little questions from the audience. We have a microphone for the audience, we do, and we'll get around the last 15 minutes or so, we'll, we'll get out to the audience and uh, get some questions from you all as well, okay? Is that all right? What will do? Welcome, welcome back to Baltimore. Thank you. Thank you for having us, and uh, apologies for the surgery, and thank you for announcing it. I would like to point out <laughs> one of, did you notice my husband trying to support me walking here? Is because <laughs> yesterday I was walking down the hall, and I didn't take my pain meds, and I just collapsed. And he goes, I told you not to wear those shoes. So... <laughs> <laughs> I said, would you like to see my scar? <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to see right, Well, anyway, this is a city that probably knows a little something about surgery. I understand y'all got a pretty good medical school here. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, this book, I don't know how many of you read this book yet, but uh, it's really quick read, easy read. Um, and one of the things that struck me, a bunch of things that struck me looking at this book. One was... The Catholic Church and the role that played in this marriage, in your lives, in also some of the arguments y'all had, um, and in the power of the marriage, the power of the church, what it meant to you, what it meant to your mom, James, and, and all the rest. Well, I, uh, I was a pre Vatican II altar boy, so I could rip off a pretty good confiti all right now if I had to. You know, what was interesting is, is that. We told a story, my wife and I spoke at the Al Smith dinner in 2010. And New Orleans is a lot like Baltimore. It's the real place of neighborhoods and culture and tradition and things like that. Every time I come here, I always feel I'm probably as comfortable here as I am in most any other American city because in many ways it's it's the same kind of place. Uh, But at any rate, we... I don't, I've only been, I'm a, some kind of statistical freak. I got married when I was 49 and I've only been married once. <laughs> and, 
You could omit statistical. Yeah, it, so it, it, <laughs> we got married in Orleans in 1993, and so often the case we got married and justice to the Supreme Court and whatever. So we moved back to New Orleans, and my wife uh, took up Catholicism, and so we decided we were going to get remarried in the church. And so the church that we went to is a place called St. Stephen's on Napoleon Avenue. And it's the kind of thing on Easter Vigil they'll do, like two baptisms. And it was one, you know, you're reconsecrated in the, in, in the Catholic Church. And so my sister and everybody came down. And so I get this phone call on Monday that's kind of, we're not alone. She said, oh, my God, I just happened to be going through stuff. And I ran across Point Lala, who are fraternal grandparents. And they were married at St. Stephen's in April of 1910. And so a hundred years later, and it just like, I don't know if I'm supernatural or signed, any of that, but I, I had said, you know, we've, I want desperately my great-grandchildren to get married <laughs> in 2110 in April. I, I just thought it was like a great, I, I'm very big into kind of continuity and family and tradition and all that kind of stuff, and it was just one of the... And, we, and in the book, we have a copy of the marriage certificates next to each other. And, you know, that's what it's, uh, you know, that's what it's about. If, you know, if you, you tradition and, and family and cultures, you know, you got to know how to peel a crap. <laughs> you know? I mean, in uh, I... I, I you know, let Mary talk. I'm going to go here, but I'm, I'm a big believer. I'm, a, I'm a, like a cultural Ayatollah. And my daughter came to me one time, and Cajorno <laughs> came to me one time, and said, "Dad, would you give us a ride to Pinkberry?" And I said, "What in the hell is damn Pinkberry? It was a yogurt place." I said, I "Tell you one goddamn thing: we don't eat yogurt in this family. We eat snowballs. Okay, I'm not taking you <laughs> to a yogurt place." Pre or post Vatican II, we don't need to use GD. Okay, this. Oh, I'm. My, he is the. I'm so. What an interesting place to start because this is a. There is our, a, a Catholic bond here, and there are very few cities that are so held together. And Chicago being one of them was my home. This being one, New Orleans. I was raised a Methodist because. Um, this is why I love history so much. My mother's side, my both so both sides are ethnic. In my the, the old country, my daddy's a Croatian, and my mother's from Ireland. And as it turns out, her father was Protestant, and her mother was Catholic, and her father forbade her mother to from practicing her Catholicism. I never knew any of this until. After we, I'm getting goosebumps telling this. After I converted, my sister sent me the crucifix, the keys to the kingdom, and all the various things that my grandmother had spirited away from her husband to, to and gave to my mother for safekeeping. And my mother died young, gave to my sister for safekeeping. So I'm not, I am, this is not a political statement. I'm an empiricist. I'm an a, a outcome-based. I'm, I'm reasonable. I'm an Aristotelian Christian. So through going... Is that allowed in the church? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> that's my priest and I fought for a long time. And I, it, this was during, I wasn't, did not start out to convert, but I said, just give me a hundred books to read. And he had gone to seminary after be at age thirty. He was a he was a BMW driving, hot 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 hot. What we we call father? What a waste! You know what I mean. <laughs> and he doesn't mind being called that either. But and he it turns out he he went to NAC the, the North American College in Rome in Rome when. Cardinal T- Timothy Cardinal Dolan was the rector for the new formation. So, it, so his whole class, they're upcoming bishops now, and very intellectual. And he, he gave me a hundred books to read, and each was more reinforcing than the next. So it was, it, I came to it via reason, 
more than faith. But the the faith, if if you, is a gift. It's such a gift, and if you, and it's such a journey. But if you live in a place like this, or you move to a place like New Orleans post Katrina, I could. See the hand of God. You see the hand of God. It was the church. It wasn't that Paul organized enough and organized multi-denominationally. The archbishop calls. Everybody comes of every denomination, and they get it done. And it just said. It just. I kept saying. Einstein said. God's uh, God's way of remaining anonymous is coincidences. So did I, did I mention that my early religious instruction was the Baltimore Catechism? <laughs> and I was telling you before we went on the air here that you're, you're three blocks from Frenchtown. The Cajuns came here, and then they went to New Orleans. A lot of them. Some of your relatives might have lived here way back when. It's possible. Not his people. I've met enough Baltimore people. No, he's, <laughs> his Acadians are a little peculiar to his Acadia. So, <laughs> so I, I started that way because to me there was like this little piece of undertext in the, uh, in, in the book that uh, throughout, well, you're going back to the White House, the Iraq War, uh, Bush winning, Gore losing, these very tense times in your relationship. One of the things I think you said in the book, Jim, was it, that I, I'm gonna, I, I stick things out. I'm staying with this woman. I'm not divorcing. And besides, we're Catholic, and that can't happen. I'm not going to let it happen. I mean, you, that was, I mean, that was a piece that kind of just struck me, that, that that was kind of a power piece. That may not have been the theme of the book, but it was a power piece inside the book. That's why I started there. It felt like it to me anyway. I didn't read that part. I've read his half of the book we wrote 20 years ago, so I had to read that part. I wasn't Catholic. I didn't know. So you were not going to divorce me just because your religion, not because you love me? No, I just, no, no, it's all about getting divorced, not to get divorced. My family, it's not something that Carvilles do anyway, so I never thought about it. Well, I mean... Given all the stuff you wrote about, if there wasn't a lot of deep love inside of this, you, <laughs> even the church couldn't have kept you together. <laughs> I mean, so with the things you said in the book, the things like the, the, the pieces that really got to you were political, even though you tried to keep the politics out of your marriage, separate from the conversations, the things that hit you, like that you two wrote about intensely, which was when uh, the, the Bush v. Gore, that period... I mean, that was hard, really hard. You're losing the election. I mean, not you, but I mean, Bush losing the election. when it No, I, I pretty much you took, lost But it. you didn't lose the election. I, I pretty you much am responsible for that stinking loss, yes. The arguments over the Iraq War, all that. These were intense moments yeah, well, for you guys. But, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I felt very passionate about... I mean, if you got to have a fight in your family, have one over a war, not, you know, uh, well, how much sugar you put in your coffee. You know, it was a... Although but he it, did fight about that, too. Yeah, yeah, he fight about a lot of things. But, it, you, you know, I mean, we've been married for 20 years. And the last major thing we had, and I, it just, it would, the way that we do it, I do it, I'm, I'm a big believer in just kick the can down the road. Just don't confront the crap. Just <laughs> don't speak for a month. And that way you're not going to say anything stupid that, you know, <laughs> is going to come back. It's better just to... Let it go. Everybody wants to confront everything. Oh, my God, let's deal with this right now. No, no, don't deal with it right now. Let it go. And I am the opposite. I'm not for that. I, would, I like to argue. I like to debate. I don't like to argue. I'm just opinionated. So we would be riding running cars, and we'd be talking about this. And one, one day he rolled down the window. It was cold out. He stuck his head out the window and just stopped talking. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, it takes two to fight. If I don't talk, you can't fight. Talk out that other window if you want, but I'm not going to fight with you. So that's how he did that. But also, emotional or trying or traumatic, as you all know, as every person knows, is on a scale in these same 20 years 
his mother was five years comatose with Alzheimer's. We went through my daddy's seven years of cancer. We went through his baby brother's unexpected death. We had our own kids at 42 and 45. He had to get an epidural for both of them. He was so out of control. (laughs) Um, You know, so we had, we had, uh, and we're old. I'm I'm 60 and he's, I'm not old. I love this age. I am so happy to be in my third act. We're empty nesters now. And he's like, my life is over. To which I say, what am I, chopped liver? Come on, this is third act. Let's. Let's go. But there, so yes, we, we, we could fight and we'd get angry and we didn't talk about it. But boy, when your daddy calls and, and says, I've got multiple myeloma, or his sister, he has five sisters. You know, his mother, for, for five years, comatose with Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's, never once was in a hospital. Never once. The five sisters, who all have families of their own, their 40 nieces and nephews, rotated nights and stayed with that, the mom, her mother, Miss Nippy, his mother. So those are the things that if you, you're not going to talk about on Tim Russert or, you know, George's show on Sunday morning, but the, the, well, that's the essence of our lives, not, not hanging chads. Well, that's what came through for me in the book. I mean, you all were... Uh, the politics was all through the book because that's who you all are. Mm-hmm. But it was the power of both your families and where you came from, what that represented to you, what those little girls meant to you when they were born, how that changed existence. I mean, that was, that, that's a huge theme here. And I think that people who marry, divorce, run away, we all... I've done that. <laughs> but what I got from which is it was really a very powerful testimony of what love means and what family means beyond, beyond the gloss over, you know. I mean, that, that's, that was no, and beyond a, the arguments, beyond the arguments. You make a, a, a really good point. And this is something that I've noticed is if you become well-known for something, then that's all people know about you. That's a guy that argues on TV. Or that's Bill Clinton's guy. Or she's the one you see Bitch. on Sunday morning TV. Or she was... <laughs> whatever. I'm just serious. Is, is that... They, or it's the same thing if you're an athlete or you have a, they listen to you on the radio and they know what you're on the radio. There's a whole other side. And what we really try to do with this book is talk about the other side. Now, in the last 20 years, we've been, you know, either ringside or in the ring for some pretty big stories of the whole Clinton impeachment, brouhaha, the 9 11. Uh, you name it, the, the, the rock walk, the Katrina reconstruction, we've been sort of ground zero. So we wanted to talk about that, but also, you know, I grew up the oldest of eight kids in a place called Carville, Louisiana, believe it or not. It was named after my grandfather, who was a postmaster, which, by the way, a very famous place in medical history. We're the largest and foremost hospital for the treatment of Hanson, which you would think of as leprosy in Carville. Uh, and it, also, only the Carvels lived there, <laughs> hence the name Carville. <laughs> but but there, it was a whole other side, and people become formed, and you, you, you're a part of that. And what was really cool, and then going back, I remember when the, the word got out that we're moving at a reliable section of post call and says, why are you moving? And I said, look, I'm just an old Jew. I'm going back to my Jerusalem. That's all I can tell you. I <laughs> We're leaving, you know. <laughs> I've been in New York long enough. I mean, I was glad I wasn't running away from anything. We talked about that a lot. But I really am married. Always loved it. We got married. She wanted to be, get married there. And I, at some level, I was struck with the fragility, and we both were, with the fragility of the culture. And we wanted to... We lost over a thousand trumpets all right, that can't be passed from one. That you can't go to the conservatory and learn this stuff. It can only be passed from generation to generation. And, and there were like fundraising efforts to raise money right. for musical instruments to give them to kids and stuff. And so 
it really, and we tried to get this across in the book, but much more than the sort of political side, is, is the sense of culture, the sense of continuity, the kind of sense of family, if you will. And, uh, you know, it, it just so happened, you know, that, I mean, things really took off and it worked out much better than anybody could expect. We didn't know that when we moved. If I can add to that, kids, you're all book people. You wouldn't be part of this library series. And what a beautiful library. We love doing, we love, I love books. I love being in libraries. I am in publishing. I'm, I got a Kindle. I got all the devices, but I like to touch and smell and keep books. But I don't like to write books. And after the last one, I said, that was like giving birth without an epidural, and I'm never going to do it again. (laughs) But 20 years later, what I discovered in New Orleans, we were doing, when you're at rock bottom, we had nothing. As our mayor said, we were 15 feet underwater. This is after we had the Super Bowl there. And now we're number one in so many categories, it's not worth naming. And I, and issues that hadn't been in my portfolio, I was in security and economic issues, and I wasn't in education, those kinds of issues. But to watch the education reform, we are now number one, not just in the state, but in the country on education reform. How did we do it? Well, Harvard would come down and... Johns Hopkins people would come down and they'd say how we were doing it. I said, why can't we say how we're doing it? Because you have to, it is, it, and I said, there's so many things I want the, to say, I, I want to put in some format that it can be possibly usable in some altered form or, or a prototype for other cities. My next project I want to do is Detroit, which is in the same sort of... You want to do that? Yeah. Uh, he I'm, does. I'm out, of, I'm out of projects. Well, I like. I grew up in the Midwest. I'm a Motown kind of girl, and I, it's just a, it's a, it's the city. It's hard to do. Our, our dear mutual friend Rahm Emanuel's in Chicago, my hometown, trying to do some of these things, and the impediments, the political impediments and infrastructure are so great that he can't. But when you are so at rock bottom like we were. So that, that was the motivation of the book for me. So for you book lovers is what I'm saying. It's really a hodgepodge. I'd like to, it has a lot of different stuff in it. We didn't structure it. We don't work together very well. He writes, <laughs> I'm very fastidious and organized. <laughs> And like to write in longhand, and he likes to take a bottle of Maker's Mark, lay down on the couch, and get a microphone and spit it out, and it comes out picture perfect. He's just brilliant. It's one of his. It's a. It's the brilliant part of ADHD. Really, really. <laughs> I'd get in. Uh, we got a tape recording. I'd ride all over South Louisiana and just sort of talk. Uh, but it was. It, it was a. A, a really fun project, and you know, be able to do that, and you know, and it, nothing focuses the attention like a hanging every fortnight or writing a book, <laughs> one of the two. Right. Well, yeah. New Orleans also brought you. I mean, it wasn't a huge part of the book again. This little piece I keep picking out, but you actually agreed on a candidate. Oh yeah, right together. Who's up for re-election in a month? Well, and we're, right. but, but you all agreed on a candidate. I would, yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> when I moved there, and he wasn't going to, he was obviously the best guy, and he, I chased him down. I wouldn't let him say, man, I've got to move my kids down here. You've got to run for mayor. And if you live in a, a city mm-hmm. like this, it really matters who the mayor is. I, you can, the governor is, but, but in, in, if you live in a city of Baltimore, the, the mayor is much more instrumental in your everyday life and the decisions they make going to govern is. I know it's like that in New Orleans. You know, it, 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 it profoundly kind of matters in that, in, in that sense. And Mary did. She was all, and still, I mean, we're all in here. It, it, we, we still got a lot of work left to do here. And the difference, you can, you can really see, and that was one of the great things, is you can really feel Danny Meyer, the great New York restaurateur, does a lot of stuff here, and, and we were riding around. And he said, "What's a what's the difference?" You know, like we were at the New York Public Library, the eighty branches, 
It's enormous. It's a great, iconic institution. But if you contribute or participate in this library, you can actually feel it. You can see it. You know, and, it's, and I said, and, and I said and, 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 you know, if you raise money for the Metropolitan Art Museum, I mean, it matters. It's a great, world-class, top-of-the-line thing, but it's just there. He said, yeah, like if you throw a rock, you can see the concentric circles. You can actually see some effect of what you do. Right. And, and, and that was what the remarkable thing is. You, you get a guy, hey, we really want you to run for mayor. We'll help you. We'll do whatever you want. And you can see it actually make a difference. It just doesn't. And, and, and the other thing to remember is this. That we're in a very fragile place. A very fragile culture, very environmentally fragile. You don't want to get started on coastal erosion, wetlands. You've got a lot of that going on here. Uh, as you know, the, the, the here, as much as we know, the, the salinity and the brackishness and the mixture of the water is a very delicate thing. It's been built up over a long period of time that can make us very productive, fecund, or whatever the word I'm looking for is, but it can also turn around on you. So all of these things, it's not really a given that we're going to be there 50, 75 years from now. It's, it's always a struggle, so it, and, and that makes it in some ways more interesting. Which is the other point of why I wanted to work on this book, because he said, because our kids were 10 and 12, they weren't ready to be uprooted. And we kept talking about post-Katrina and all dear, dear friends of mine, Donna Brazil, lost her whole family. She's still, I think she's finally found them, but she's seven years later, she's finally housed them all. And we, it was just so emotional. And he kept saying, Sugar, we're going to become a sliver on a river. I'm from Chicago. Anything that follows sugar, I'm going to go for. But so we're there for two years, and, and it was so, nothing was happening. And I said, Oh, what, would I, what have I done to these girls? You know, we're responsible for them. So he, we took a, he took a poll, and I liked Mitch Land, who is a Democrat, because of this. He came into my kitchen one New Year's Day, the New Year's Day tradition is, you know, the beans and the cabbage and all that. And he goes, sugar, I need to get up in your pots. And I'm like, get up in my pots? <laughs> well, it followed sugar, so I said, you can get up in my pots, whatever. And he... So we talked about it, and I said, I can't, I'm a conservative, I know why I'm a conservative, I can support this, I can't support that. He goes, I'm just a practical, if you come to my office and you've got a solution, I'm going to listen to you. You come to my office and you want to divide, and we have had these old fights, forget about it, we don't have, uh, I got too much to do. And he has five kids of his own, so it's been a blessing to to work with him. And, and I wanted to say, in this time when in this book, in this time when we're also like have political fatigue and race fatigue and all these fight fatigues, he won with sixty seven percent of the black vote, sixty seven percent of the white vote, uptown, downtown, all around town. We're making progress on everything, and no one, no one ever says, "Are you a Democrat or a Republican?" They just want to say, "Can you, can you get up in my pots or what?" So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. We are to be here. Has this ever happened to anybody here? We used to be season ticket holders, at Orioles, and no. So you go to the games and we like Cal Ripken, the daughter of Brady Anderson. I think that Brady probably took a needle or two, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so we would come to a lot of the games. Have you ever been at somewhere else and they're playing the anthem and just you're the only person that goes, oh! <laughs> that happened to me and people were looking at me and went, ooh, I'm not done. You just become so accustomed to that thing. I, I know that's had to happen to somebody other than me. <laughs> or then if we ever go to another state and we're like, who that? Who that? We've got to get it together. You know, that was a great story. When Camden Yards opened, I called Frank Lachino, who was like the assassin at Allegheny Pine, who was Larry's brother. And I said, Frank, can you call your brother? I want to get season tickets at Orioles. 
So he called me back like in three days and said, all right, you're going to get some tickets and they're going to be good tickets. And like they were great tickets. <laughs> and I said to myself, boy, I got these, you know, and this is right after President Clinton got elected. And, you know, like anything else in politics, you ask for a favor, somebody's going to call you. Sure enough, <laughs> seven, eight months later, it's Frank Lachino on the phone. He said, James, how are you doing? He says, how do you like those tickets? <laughs> I said, you're going to love this story. I said, they're great tickets. He said, I, I have a favor. And I'm like, yeah, you sure? And I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be awful. He said, there's something called the National Library Board. And it, like, doesn't pay anything, but I've always loved libraries. And the president has, like, three vacancies. And I'm like, Frank, I think we can do this. <laughs> and you can go look it up. He was at the National Board of Libraries and, like, meet three times a year. Now, even though you've got to pay your own way to go to Washington. So like he called and said, ah, the tickets, the national, I, I didn't know, you know what I mean, there's some Saudi prince that he wants to, you know, meet with the, but, you know, I didn't know what the hell was coming from Frank for those, for those oil tickets, but I don't think I've ever told that story before, but I, I probably, the statute of limitation is passed, so I can't go to jail for trading the National Library Board for good oil tickets. That's great. <laughs> I have to. I have to ask you. I have to ask you one thing. Can we talk about pets for a minute? Okay, if you want to see us get into it. <laughs> Can we talk about pets? I mean, I read this part of the book really intensely, and my my wife, Dave Valerie, is reading this part of the book, and um, she's uh, collects every animal that exists on the planet Earth. Where is that beloved woman? She was with us. I don't know where she went now, but but she. When we first got together, we had I don't remember eight nine, whatever the number of cats were that ended up in our house. And I'm, I mean, they're all right, but, <laughs> but now, and I, when I read this part of your book, and I, and I, and I, I like animals. <laughs> James, you don't like them at all. Well, no, I don't like animals in a food <laughs> prep area. A little cat fur on the butter, you would think he could, it's like not the biggest deal. And let me just say, on behalf of your wife and anybody else in this audience, the presence of multiple cats is not proof of crazy cat ladyism. I, we, and particularly in New Orleans, I, I could not live in a city that wasn't animal, animal caring. In Virginia, Virginia, we have I, I write about the dog park right next to our house, but there. Remember, do you remember those pictures? People were not leave the roof without their pets. Right. And um, after the, uh, the, the, the after the water subsided, all the cats became semi-feral, just roaming the, the streets. So I adopted. And, and they didn't. Re- they don't really live in our house. Sure, they get up in the butter. They get up in the pots. And so they roam around, but they also like. There's a lot of other critters around. They they've cleaned out all the rodents and the other kind of things up and down the block. They so, they come and go as they please. Okay, it was the seven dogs, the two rats, and the four birds that kind of <laughs> threw him, <laughs> threw him over the edge. Um, but they're all like rescue. You know, you can't. Okay, and you know what? I never, this is what I never expected. He never even had a bike. He grew up on a horse. When we were first going out, he so had nothing. I had to buy him a bike when he was 40, whatever you, 45. He had so nothing in his apartment, which is also his office. It was a Murphy bed by night, his office by day. He was burglarized at one point, and he had so nothing in his house that the thief left a calling card which was he pooped right. on his, <laughs> he stole his maker's mark and he defecated in his house he had so nothing so I thought he'd like 
a few animals in the house too. I thought it'd be like a southern kind of thing. Yeah, where can you get this kind of information on a rainy Friday night? Huh? <laughs> I'm just support your animal shelter. Okay, tell you something else. These these Walter Reed wounded soldiers. These programs that the shelter dogs that we've matched up with are the battered women. You know they. There's so many great programs with animals that want to be loved and saved and people who want to be loved and saved. And I, I don't just do it because I want to I, aggravate him I, with cat hairs I, and the butter. I, got, I, I love animals. I've got nothing against them. I could ride a horse before I could ride a bike. I just don't like animals and food. <laughs> Maybe that's weird, but it's just a little thing of mine. Yeah, I don't like the cat licking my butter. Well, well, just agree to disagree on that. <laughs> well, <laughs> there was one cat. I, I will leave the cat thing in a minute. But I, when the, what was the name of the cat that you were trying to get, you were trying to shoo out and get rid of, and it was oh. that you were singing him a song. Here's how ADHD works. There's a really, actually, a good section about his ADHD, and both of our kids have processing issues. And I never think of this as a disease or a defect, or it's, to me, I don't know any genius people that aren't ADHD or don't have some sort of processing Support part of the book, actually. So I'm, this is a James Carville ADHD moment. The animal antipathy increases as the the longer you get there. And I said, okay, promise, nothing else, no more. I'm done, you're right, wearing rats on my shoulders, and I'm cooking pesto, I get it. There's a big rat. Nobody likes rats just because of the tails. So our daughter's math teacher, who became the semi-feral cat, Kitty Castle, because she drives... She sends around this picture and says, this cat was living with a homeless guy. We found a house for the homeless guy, but we can't find a cat. Uh, we need a home for the cat. And she was living in, in the car, and her tail got chopped off. So who could resist that, right? But my previous adopted cats were kittens, and I hid them, and he never knew. Like, they would just show up, and they thought they just lived in the neighborhood. Well, this was a grown cat with a no tail, kind of hard to miss. So it's in his room, and I hear him screaming, Paula, Paula, hey, hey, Paula. And this is right after Jennifer Flowers had moved to New Orleans. You remember Jennifer Flowers, Okay. <laughs> So I never know if James is in real time or past time or future time. He could be in any time. So I thought he was having a Jennifer Flowers, Paula flashback thing. And I go into his room and he refuses to touch the animals. So he's going, hey, 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 to get Paula off his chair. No human is allowed to touch his chair either. And because he was going, hey, hey, then he goes, hey, hey, Paula. And he starts to go, that's so, he named the cat Paula because that's all he could think of after he said, hey, hey. So I thought Paula could stay, but I was mistaken. And Paula now lives across the street with the, the Slosses who adopted her. Hey, hey, Paula. ADHD, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a true story about I was in an airport one time, and somebody came up to me and said, you know, Mr. Colville, I'm the, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins or somewhere, I don't know, whatever. And he said, I don't generally make you know, diagnosis, but I've been looking at you for the last 10 minutes, and I'm pretty sure you got a pretty good case of ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife would drive her crazy. Because I would like just, she would say something and then I would drift off and say something else. So we like went to some, you know, high powered Northwest Cleveland Park psychiatrist who like one of these, one of these guys that, you know, just gives you stuff and, you know, it's a battery of tests and questions and interviews and everything. And so they called us in and he said, You have a case of, you an extreme a- 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 case. You know, I've diagnosed it, and the uh, 
you know, that, that we can offer certain kind of medication and stuff. And, I, you know, I just said, you know, I, I, don't, I talked to my wife about it, and I said, I just kind of like the way I am. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to medicate myself to be something else. And I think it really helped our marriage because that she didn't she understood why, you know, it's like everything in me is to like pick up the iPad to see what the score is or something, or drift off, but you know, I know I don't do it. But that, I do that a lot, and so people that don't know me say, that guy is just jumps up, my mother used to say, boy, it's like a toaster, he just jumps up and down all the time. <laughs> and I, I've had any number of people that have said, you know, when I first met you, I thought you were rude. And then after I got to know you, I just understand that's just the way you are. You just sort of walk out of a room and be in the middle of a meeting. And in mid-conversation. <laughs> okay, when I come in and I'm spilling out my heart and tears are coming down my face and he picks up the phone and he goes, Stan, you know question number 10 on that poem? Like, this went on for like a couple of years and I said, you don't, you don't even listen to me. He goes, yes, you said. And he would repeat verbatim what I'd said that day, the day before, five years earlier, he knew. It's like what good is that? You know, that's not but now, so now here's how this works. James, focus at me, look at me, this is how I'm, no, if I really want him to, I know this means something to me, I swear to God, 90 seconds is all I need. He will like this, like laser. He said, okay, we're done here. And it works. And he has a giant big heart. And he really, he does here even though he has can. But you all accept, here's the thing about that though, and it's clear in the book, that you all accept each other for who you are. And yeah, that's how I'm you hardly a walk in the, the park. The things you come through, right? <laughs> it takes a, it takes a, it takes a sort of while. To get that, you know, you know our, our kids, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, that she had the same thing. And oh my God, we took her to, you know, some high-powered, you know, they gave her a test. She was like in the third or fourth grade. And said, well, this child's really got some issues here. She probably, you know, we, so we put her in another school. And, you know, next thing you know, we moved in the arms. We put her in, and she got a wins every award, she made straight A's her first year in college, she's but like she's really so what do they know? No. <laughs> Here's what I mean, they uh, know. But every kid, these children learn differently. differently. And know, I think of all the lives that have just been because we just run them through the same mill that we say they to can't mothers, do it. Right. To grandmothers, yeah. to educators our education, this is not a criticism of the education system, although it is one of our tactics that's working in New Orleans, one kid at a time. And just having a small number of children to one teacher isn't doing it. You've got to get how each kid works. So this kid we're talking about who's taking junior-level courses as a freshman, getting straight A's, couldn't read or write. You know how I taught her how to read? I would read aloud to her Dorothy Parker. So when she was like seven and eight, she'd run around saying things like, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Well, and she kept getting positive feedback. One martini, two martini. She goes, watch my mom on four. Like she would, and, but it got her understanding that, and she skipped right over the the books on the, and whatever her processing issue was, she had to read those books. So at 14, she announced she was going to go to France for a month and study expat literature, and she did. Oh, God, so, did she not know that? And, she, I mean, and we literally didn't think she, we didn't even know if she could get through high school. So I, I, I do notice that Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Tokas lived on the Rue de Four because I had to she'd take me there and show where they were. <laughs> I think one of the, the, the toughest single time from the book that y'all went through was Bush v. Gore. You're going to work for the White House. That period where you even described not talking for months and months on end. And you came through that and you ended up going to New Orleans a couple of years later. 2008, you went to New Orleans, right? 2008? Is that right? Yes. 
Yeah, we so, I mean, but that, that was, I mean, that, 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 that whole story between the, your two parts back and forth in that period was pretty intense. Well, yeah, I did read that half. I did read those parts. You read those yeah, parts? Yeah, I mean, what happened was I was not happy about it. But when 9-11, then I was very glad because I felt like our family, she was in there, she was, you know, there. And so at that time, I was kind of proud that we had somebody in our family who was really making a contribution. So it kind of changed the, the, a lot of it. And, uh, yeah, we, didn't, we moved. What happened was, I was very, we both were, it was very close. It's kind of one of these things that, I, you know, we were very close to Tim Russ. He was probably the closest friend I had in Washington. I talked to him every day on the phone dedicated the book to him. The day that we moved, I got a phone call. I'll talk about it in the book, right at the beginning of the book. Then Bow Hunt called, said, I got worse than you imagine. Tim dropped dead. And it was almost like it was just one of these things that, you know, I don't supernatural take what you want, but it was almost like, said, all right, you want to move? We'll show you. We'll, we'll start severing connections here right now. And, uh, uh, but it, 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 it you know, families were just, ours is more high profile. But people work in different professions or different, you know, couples. Some people work here, some people work for, for you know, different things. And they go through, and marriages go through difficult times. Ours is sort of no different than, than any other marriage. It's just more, ours is over the White House or, or the Clinton or whatever. But it's not, it's just a higher profile of things that all, that other couples go through and have to face. And, you know, it, it, we've been very fortunate, but we tried to go through some of that, talk about some of that kind of stuff in, in, in the book. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's not political per se. The, the recount... Everybody was emotional about that. I don't care if you were living on another planet. It just got to be emotional. And I was done with politics. I'm not a careerist. I liked, I've been blessed to work and love the people that I work for, but I had a TV job. I, the kids were two and five. But I really, really had a long-term relationship and infection and, and appreciation for Dick Cheney. I also could invent my own job. So that was, that was what, but he was already, we were already mad at each other. And then I said, I'm going to go to the White House. And then that just, then he said, no, you can't. Well, that's not even a political thing. It's like, I'm 46, okay, I've produced two babies, I've had a career, you're going to tell me I can't. Then it, be, it became, it wasn't a Republican-Democratic thing. It was like, hey, like, you know, you have that sign in the bathroom here. Uh, I am woman. I'm invincible. I'm tired. Okay. I was kind of said, oh. we, so then he did not speak to me for five months. And said, well, good. That takes, checks one thing off my list. I don't have to deal with every day. And then, but what the heck? Then we, that was, the, not, five, five, what's five months out of That's 20 it. years? There you We're speaking now. All right. Well, I, I mean, that, that part was, the other things that popped out after that part was the, the, the respect. You wrote a piece in there, James, about as much as you opposed him, the kind of respect you found for Dick Cheney. But it's a B, I mean, he's, right, I did, frozen. Ah, but he's a, he's a personable guy to talk, most people, when you meet him, I mean, like, I, President Bush 41, I did everything I could, you know, like, the most frightening person I've ever been around is Bob Bush. Ooh, man, we did a thing at, at, at the Bush Library a couple of years ago, maybe not even a couple of years ago, maybe like a year ago, and she would not mentioned my name for years. And she yes, be, she did. She had a name for him. It was, <laughs> he who shall not be named. <laughs> and she made me sit next to her 
at the dinner, and man, I was, I was nervous. We, she said some nice things about it. But you know, when you meet people, it's, it's like different. Because you see them, and I mean, that's the thing about political combat. I'm putting one of my rooms. Never go in the green room because you end up kind of, you know, saying, oh, guys just like you. And like even Bush, President Bush 43, I mean, when there was an event, a senior staff event, and obviously I'd go, that was the, and he was about waiting for me to come. He'd hey, Carl, come here, come here. Hey, you son of a have a treat, Mary Bam, kick your ass. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I mean, he was most, and, and you know, the same thing with the vice president. We'd go out to Jackson Hole because she'd be the staff person on assignment there. And we'd go over and he'd sort of go out of his way. To, and so Mary said, well, yeah, we're talking about mountains. How did that happen? He said, well, I was sitting there with Dick Cheney. I knew I couldn't talk about politics. I was in Jackson Hole. I looked up and I saw these huge mountains. I said, yeah, Mr. Vice President, how those, what's the geological structure of those mountains? And then he just took off. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes if you're ADHD and you got to make small talk and you're sitting in the mountains, you go, oh, what the hell about the damn mountains? So that very intense uh-huh. picture of those two in the yeah. book, they're talking about geological yeah. formation. <laughs> make that so, clear. Yeah, it's kind of what comes to mind if you're in Jackson Hole and you're looking around. And <laughs> oh, man, the Grand Tetons. How did they get there? But I, mean, I, and I found out they're very new. And he knew it, he knew it backwards and forwards. They probably, guy could probably teach you know, a good course of you know, survey geology somewhere if he had to. And as a general proposition, I didn't put this in the, in the book, but we've been doing this for 35 years, and it used to be you really didn't divide people by Democrats or Republicans. You divided them by good guys and a-holes. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's a technical term in politics. So, it, it, like President Clinton, I wouldn't vote for him. If it, but he, whenever he comes to the House, and he comes a lot, even though he's a vegan, he, there's a place he can come to sneak in some shrimp etouffee. But he loves to come there, and James starts talking politics. He goes, wait, wait, show me this. Who knew he is a connoisseur of Obscure furniture, antiques. Like I, I have this Italian uh, Corona over our bed. James is like, "What the hell is that thing for?" And, and President Clinton is late for his own event, a fundraiser at our house, because he wanted to understand all that. And he, he likes to. He's just an interest. There's nothing that guy doesn't know a lot about, and a lot of interesting things about, and is not making small talk. Like he will. And he, and he likes talking to me. He, I mean, it, sometimes. However smart you think he is, you have no idea. You know, and, and, and the, the, one of the things I put in the book, the biggest lesson that President Clinton ever taught me is he walks into a room and he finds the most vulnerable person in the room. If, if you want Bill Clinton to talk to you, have 50 49 people in, in the room, not in a wheelchair, and one in a wheelchair, and he's going right to that guy. And it's instinctive. He just has a, uh, uh, in, in, uh, any topic, anything you can imagine, this has been marriage exactly right, if it's antiques, if it's economics, if it's sports, if it's whatever that you want, it's amazing how one human being could just absorb that much, and then also his uh, the guy wrote a book, and uh, you know I think that he was he at the University of Maryland, maybe somewhere here, and and he did a empathy intelligence scale, and no one his claim was, and he was some a man of some expertise. No one has ever scored higher. I mean, you could have you know Einstein, who was like off the charts, and you know empathy, and maybe a guy that was you know a Mother Teresa, who, I mean, intelligence, maybe Mother Teresa might have been off the chart in empathy or something, but I mean, the, the space that you would put in the graph, but he was like way more than anybody else. And he had a, a, a way that he devised it. But he is the most, the, the breadth of his knowledge and ability is, to talk about different things is, you know, a great conversation. And, and you know what else you wouldn't think you would have? Because one thing I can't stand about politicians, 
Hi, how are you doing? And they're, look, they're doing this and they're looking past right. you. That's right. not peculiar to either party. He, when he's talking to you, he's talking to you. And he's, we were in South America by accident or coincidence together. And he, President Clinton and I got into a conversation about Zoroastrians. I'm not saying that the right way, early Christians. 45 minutes outside the elevator bank, we're still talking about it. James goes for his run. He comes back. You guys are still talking. I mean, Clinton knows he's not going to get my vote. And he's just like... He's just is he perpetually interesting person. And I'll tell you something else. When Senator Clinton was a senator, one of Dick Cheney's jobs was to be president of the Senate. And she was our go-to girl, so to speak. This is the kind of people who under-promise and over-deliver. She never said she was going to do something and didn't do it. And so you, there's a lot of reasons to respect people on the other side that do not, are not conveyed in the way in which politics is conveyed uh, to somebody who doesn't work in it today. We're about to end. Let me just end with this, because it's almost 8 o'clock. I'm going to get you all out of here at 8. The, the way you lived your lives, the stories in this book, what, the stories you really have to tell, what do they say to you all about the larger political picture we're facing in America and the ability to have friendships. Val and I talk about this all the time. We are to the left of center in our world, Valerie and I. Our next door neighbor is the head of his American Legion post and to the right of most people that I know. We're as close as we can be. We help each other out in our different pieces of property and whatever else happens. There's something missing here that we can't make that bridge and have to define everything by how we view the world politically or religiously. And you two, in some ways, for all the, 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 the funniness and the stuff you do back and forth and the books you write, you're also telling us something else about how we can live together, despite some deep-seated differences in how we view the world. You know, this is not peculiar to our time, the Pharisees and the, okay, <laughs> from the beginning of time, you start with common, common ground. I mean, start with energy. Why start the things that we know we're going to fight about? I would say that about marriage, if we know we're going to fight about it, why start there? If, and that's right, some for for, for myriad reasons, not least being 24-7 screecher uh, monkey feces-throwing political TV, which is why I hate doing it anymore, and I miss Tim Russell so much. There, I'm not blaming it just on that. And, and we, are at a weird, we are at a strange, we're at a unique crossroads where our debt, our structural debt, and some of our problems need to be addressed in ways that are uncompromisable. They're just in the way that the Compromise of 1850 did not do anything to prevent the eradication of slavery. But there's, we really do have, Clinton and the Italian Corona, you and your neighbor, okay, if you start with James and his green room theory, if you just, there's not one person in this room that doesn't have something in common with the person he or she would least like in this room if she were forced to. I just, that's just. Amen to that. Start. Start there. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to let Mary have the last word on that. I'm going to have the last word. I, I want to tell a story about libraries. Uh, because I think it's like important. When I grew up in rural South Louisiana in the 50s, we didn't have libraries. We had something called, I don't know if anybody, maybe they had them in rural Maryland one time, called a bookmobile. And it would come on Tuesday from 2 to 4 and Thursday from 9 to 11 or whatever. And they like post a schedule and they had two ladies and of course the thing never ran very well. It burned a lot of all because it 
you know, then they would come in and sort of encourage everybody. So I was a kid growing up in South Louisiana, and the bookmobile came and somewhere in there, and they tried to make it pleasant, and they really were committed to try to keep people to read. And so I said, I came in and I asked them if they had some book about LSU football or something. And they said, yo, we have something like that. I think you, ought, I think you should try this, this book here. And I said, what is this? And they said, well, here it is. It's called To Kill a Mockingbird. I said, well, nobody wants to like shoot a mockingbird. <laughs> and they said, no, you should take it home. You should read it. And I must have been, I don't know, 15 years old or whatever. And we took that book home, and it just changed in everything, of course, where I grew up, and it was all race. And I said, yeah, you know what? The black folks get a bum deal. I just changed my mind right there and just never sought to look back. But, I mean, the point is, is that you never know who's going to walk into a library, who's going to pull something out, or who's going to... It doesn't have to be a, a, identify somebody's political philosophy or something, and... You know, I was making a point that maybe somebody is, you learn something and you provoke a different career. But you don't you never know how many lives a library can impact. And that's why it's a big honor to be in this great library here. We were in the New York Public Library uh, yesterday. And when you come out to something like this and support this library, you're really supporting somebody's dream somewhere. And as Frederick Dulles did, did say, you, 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 as long as you can read, you're always free. And I would only add to the great Frederick Douglass, the more you read, the freer you are. And so I uh, thank Tick Mark. What a, what, a, what, a, what a great job you did. Thank you. What a great audience. Mary Madeline, James Carville. Readings and Readings has their books, so please get a book, their sign, and autograph. Thank you both so much.